This is the In The Scope Podcast, where you read and hear new perspectives in the scope of different lenses. I am your host, Joshua M. Hicks, current senior writer of Rio Rigo Radio, a.k.a. War Media. And in this special edition, we, ex- we have exclusive interviews with former Bulls guard Craig Hodges to talk all things NBA, including his thoughts on The Last Dance, his recent critical comments on MJ, and his personal relationships with MJ and Kobe Bryant. We also have WBEZ sports reporter Cheryl Gray Stout, who stopped by to talk The Last Dance prior to its release and talk about her personal experiences covering MJ. Last but not least, we have current NBA reporter Eric Woodyard to discuss his thoughts on The Last Dance, his recent reporting on today's NBA regarding when the schedule the season's supposed to come back, as well as his thoughts on the Big Three's recent statement around their upcoming virtual reality show. Make sure to subscribe to the War on Anchor podcast, the home of the Endoscope podcast, on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the TuneIn Tune app. And make sure to check out the War Media website at WeAreRigorRadio.com to get all the hottest and latest content on all things sports. Again, this is Joshua M. Hicks, and we hope you enjoy the show. up everybody this is uh, your man joshua m hicks in the scope podcast and writer for we senior writer i'm here with uh fool's great craig hodges uh craig man thank you so much for joining uh joining the, the podcast and doing this interview with me i really appreciate it oh brother it's my pleasure i appreciate it peace and blessings no problem man first off first of all before we jump into the nba discussion how are you and your family uh during this pandemic Lord, Lord has been good, man. Everybody's been well. I have, I've had, um, you know, have had a couple friends that have passed on. A good brother by the name of Harold Davis, um, who is, you know, radio host. Good brother, you know. It's just, uh, it's sad. It's sad that this is a continuance of, you know, so much that has gone on in our history in America. Yeah, man, I feel you. I feel you on that. It's really been tough on a lot of people out uh, out here, especially in Chicago, with being one of the top hot spots where this coronavirus really is hitting hitting us pretty hard. But I'm glad to hear that you're safe mm-hmm. and uh, continue to stay safe out there between you and your family. Um, no doubt. As, regard, as regarding with this pandemic that's currently going on, the NBA is, you know, affected by it. All sports have been affected by it. And there's still optimism recently around the league um, that's shows that they're trying to finish off the season, that there's a way to finish off the season. In your opinion, do you believe that they should, and why or why not? Well, you know, it's uh, it's wishful thinking. <laughs> it's wishful thinking on their behalf. Uh, to me, when you stop and you look at the longevity of this thing, man, it's going to be a lot longer than they're telling us. Um, when I look at just the idea of uh, the NBA thinking about going back, you know, we've only been in this thing maybe 30 days at the most in as far as consciousness. It's going to take a period of time for people to unwind and get back to one that's sitting in an arena next to each other. You know, you can imagine if somebody coughed next, sitting next to you with that what type of panic might break out and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be a slow unwind from where I'm sitting just watching historical, political, economic. And, you know, we stop and really look at the sport, the sports and entertainment and other, how necessary and how critical it is. That's why they're trying to get it back. You know, it's... Uh, it's a necessary evil. <laughs> and and that now we're in that point where 
a lot of this is going back to the karma growth. You know, it's a, a lot of this is, is karma coming back at a lot of these nations, man. So, you know, I look at it in, a, in somewhat of a different mindset and a different eyesight because I understand it from a different level. Yeah, I completely understand, man. But and since your uh, opinion is that you believe that the NBA is going to be a long time before the NBA season comes back, let's just say that hypothetically they do uh, kind of rush this thing and get back into the season. Mm-hmm. Do you right. think that NBA there's a concern for NBA players wanting to play just a few games before you actually go straight into a playoff because of domestic you know, conditioning? Yeah, it ain't, you know, the thing is, you know, you look at it, once again, if we just stop, and, and once again, wherever you're at and you're hearing this, you have to think critically at this damn time. It can't be uh, a frivolous mindset. You have to stop and you have to look at things on a critical level, which is part of the reason that, you know, some things are outside of governance. And so I look at it from a spiritual standpoint that the creator has given us time, especially black people in America, giving us time to sit down and research. You know, you look at the research of sports. Sports are cyclical. So, you know, you have the cycle. So baseball comes before basketball. <laughs> so if they're talking about pushing baseball, I've heard anywhere from Thanksgiving to Christmas for the World Series. So where does that put basketball? Then we go into what has to happen. You're not going to have multi-million dollar investments go out and just start hooping. There has to be a certain training camp, a certain training period put in place, whether it be teams are going to work out together and then at the end of the, the basic working session of an hour, now we're going to have these scrimmage games that we do live or whatever. How are you going to do it? There's going to have to be a training regiment put in so that players can get themselves in some semblance of conditioning. Yeah, that's that's some really good insight. Uh, for those tuning in, you are on. The, uh, you're listening to a special edition podcast featuring Craig Hodges, former uh former Bulls player and NBA standout three point champion of the of the um the three point shootout and uh, from the All Star from the All Star weekend. Craig Hodges, man, did you did you actually follow up on the NBA this season? Did say it again? Did you? Did you follow up on the NBA this season? Were you able to pay attention throughout the season of all the teams and the games yeah, going on? You, you, you know what was funny was um, uh, All-Star Weekend. Of course, it was here in Chicago. Now, one of the things that is so so wild to me is that we had All-Star Weekend. The week prior to that, I was at the, uh, the car show. So if we stop and we really look at the components of this virus connected to the affairs of black people both in Louisiana and black people in Chicago. So you talk about the Mardi Gras being a hotbed and this being a hotbed, same thing. So going into going into the All-Star, you know, I had been out to L.A. to, to Kobe's memorial. So it was a lot of, you know, it was weird energy going on throughout this, man. And, you know, the season was building up to where it was going to be a climactic thing. And it was going to be lovely to see how LeBron was going to be able to go against the Clippers and, and Kawhi. It was going to see. It was going to be nice to see how the East was going to shape up, and now it's a you know it's somewhat of what somewhat of a hiatus throughout the sporting realm, and you see a lot of teams like, for instance, when I looked at pro football and the deals that were made, I was like, man, we that's never seen no deals like that. But 
it's a weird time. So some weird things are going to come about in as far as all all of the society is concerned. So, you know, the basketball, it was it was uh, panning out to be um, maybe one of the greatest seasons in as far as parity was concerned and maybe just the competitive um, energies coming back in as far as, you know, the way teams have positioned themselves. But now I think it's going to be a um, it's going to be interesting to watch. It's just going to be interesting to watch, especially from where I sit. You know, I look at it from the perspective of spiritual versus the physical. Is the stuff that we're seeing on the physical plane really does it really affect Craig Hodges from that standpoint? And what what can I do to make sure that my people are understanding what time this is and understanding that it's a lot of stuff going on politically. That's going to affect how the sport is played coming out of this, how people are going to react. Are they going to have social distancing in the arenas? So our, our teams are going to come back and play with no fans. You know, so it's a lot of things that, like for me, when I think of a team, I think of LeBron James and the L.A. Clippers, LA Lakers playing against, um, let's say, the Boston Celtics. The chances of injury are so highly magnified without fans being there because players aren't going as hard as they normally would. And that's when injuries happen. So it's a lot of dynamics that are going on that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And that's just to mm-hmm. continue the conversation with this, se- with this season that just abruptly uh, stopped. Who did mm-hmm. you think, up to date, who did you think was going to win that championship? Well, I, you know, you can't discount when you have LeBron and Anthony Davis together, though. That's that's a that's a uh, awesome combination. And then they have a they have a group of players who have been there. You know, when you talk about Danny Green, when you talk about Rondo, you know, you can, they have a group of players that are you know seasoned veterans and, and and have won rings. And then you have another side for Wild Leonard leading the Clipper team that is hungry, that has a great complement of players who understand. And a great coach who, who's been there and, and understands how to mobilize his troops to get ready. So I think it was going to be, um, to me, I thought that was going to be the actual championship battle <laughs> of who came out the West was actually going to win it. But you never know, man. All it is, you know, never know with injury, uh, who goes down. And, and over a long season, you never know what could happen. So it's always uh, who's the best prepared and who can make sure they maintain the defensive um, composition and then be able to score on the other end. That's true, and that, that's very true, and I agree with you on that. Um, from an NBA award perspective, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the MVP race was pretty close. You know, Giannis is having a really good historic year. Um, adding man, Giannis is the man. Ain't nobody in Giannis's category, but uh, you know, you can talk with Brown all you want to. It's Giannis, man. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. And to me, to me, it's not even it's not even uh, comparable because I look at it like this: he's at that point where he's in control of the game, and that is a that is a um, masterful and that's the most valuable level to be on. LeBron was at that point at a given time. And Kobe did it. You've seen Durant. You, you've seen players come through that point where it's a certain look in his face, it's a certain way that he's playing, where he's not going to deny his opportunity to be the best on a given day. And he's taking the day to day of being the best. So right now, I don't even see it. I don't even see anybody that can say it's even close in my opinion. 
Okay, so you so are you just for the audience's sake, you are saying that Giannis should have been the MVP this year. Um before no, no. The it, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see it. Man. Come on, man. And then, uh, you know, like, for me, I'm a basketball head. I, you know, I understand basketball I, you, and all of that. Okay. But if you just stop and look, take away all that I know, but just look. Look at what he does. Look at what he brings on a daily basis of how he can he can change the game through a steal, through a rebound, through a block, through a dunk, through a three, man. And he can bring this ball down court at 6'10", 6'11". Come on, man. Come on. That's... Okay. Okay, I can feel that. Even though LeBron has, you know, had his, he had a good season. So back to where he was sort of like LeBron James of old, in a sense. Um, just a hot, just, just, since we're on that topic, talk about LeBron mm-hmm. James and how he's been able to maintain this high level of, of play even during his 17th year in the league. Well, for me, when I look at it, you know, um, and I say that all the time, that being part of this family, black family, part of the African American, whatever you're going to label us today, <laughs> okay, those who are who of us who are black skin and nappy hair, let's put it like that, and some of us who have shaved our hair to be bald because our hair won't grow no more, whatever. Now, that family, that family has been put forth and blessed with with seeds from generational. So when I see a LeBron James, I'm not seeing him in this day and time. I'm seeing him being a a consistent rollout from the generations that came before him for him to be able to do what he's doing through their sacrifices. So for him to be in it for 16, 17 years, going strong and getting stronger, is not only a, uh, a testimony to him, but it's an ancestral pool, man. So I look at that, and it's not it's not no it's not aberration. It's real. It's, and, and then you talk about when we look at how he trains, you know. So his training rec- his training regimen, along with his DNA, has came together in a perfect storm of a basketball player. And this happened, Bill Russell, you know. You you have you can look through history to see where the gene pool has played such a role in the athlete, and then you have to look into that generational pool. That hey man, I was blessed to come along through a great gene pool to be able to carry it forward, and then train on a level that they didn't get an opportunity to train on. So you know, it's, it's we're blessed, man, to be part of this holy family that we are. Continue on, continuing on with the LeBron James discussion um, when he. After he left Cleveland to go to L.A., there was a lot of, uh, I don't want to say uproar, but there was a lot of discussion about mm-hmm. L.A. accepting him from a Lakers franchise and from a city perspective because that Kobe was still there and Kobe was the guy that, you know, he grew up a Laker, uh, he grew up in the NBA as a Laker, drafted, never left. He was, he was Mr. Laker for the most part. And to have another superstar like LeBron who wasn't part of that Laker family from the beginning, um, you know, there was a huge discussion of whose city is it? Is it going to be LeBron City? Is it going to be so Kobe City? Is, how is he going to fit in as a Laker? Um, do you believe that, especially with the unfortunate uh, death of Kobe, that Laker that he has now put himself in a position to where he is actually embraced, fully embraced by the Laker Nation and by the city of Los Angeles as a whole? 
See, man, I was um, I was blessed to be on the coaching staff for five years with the Lakers when we won the last two championships and had a chance to be Kobe's shooting coach. So knowing the brother, the one one quote that came to mind while you were going through that is that love conquers all, man. And the love that them brothers had for one another, it was no beef about Kobe handing the reins over to the city, to, to LeBron, and I want to sit here and watch you do your thing, man. And that that's the part to me that is so sorely missed in Kobe being gone, man, is that it's a certain humanitarian that was in that brother that he always wanted to see the next, that he, he knew his role in the game, and he knew when he had played his role to the max and it was time for him to set the baton, and he knew that he was passing it on to not only a stable brother, but a brother that was going to take it to the next level, but not dismiss him. And I think that's the part where that a lot of people looking on the outside look at whose city is it or not. Man, it was, you know, in L.A. then, whatever it is, they, they embraced LeBron because LeBron bought that type of magnetism, that type of star appeal, and it wasn't, it wasn't a thing where, you know, L.A. is the type of city that if you bring that, they're going to embrace you. Now, if you go sideways, then they're going to let you have it. But, you know, LeBron is the type of, you know, stable family man, understanding what his what his um, potential is on the court and living up to it and, and having Kobe's mantra and Kobe's, um, you know, salute to go ahead and do that, I think that, that should let everybody know that it wasn't any type of um, competition on whose city it was going to be, whether Kobe was passed on or whether Kobe was still here. It's still, you know, it's still the legacy of, you know, great brothers doing great things in the city under the title of a great game. You are now listening to uh, Craig Hodges, former Bull. Um, Craig, I know you just recently highlighted it more on LeBron James as a humanitarian, as a social activist. Um, mm-hmm. You are you have been known to be a social activist yourself. Um, you wore dashiki to the nineteen ninety to the nineteen ninety two White House visit, and you paid, and it, you know it came with a cost of ultimately ending your career. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about how the importance of professional players, especially top-tier athletes like LeBron James, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, uh, and players of that sort to utilize their platforms to speak out on social justice issues and what they feel is right and what they feel is necessary from a African-American perspective, and not just as, as an African-American perspective, but also as a human citizen uh, perspective, even LeBron James recently right. spoke out against the pandemic and how he feels mm-hmm. how he feels he doesn't want to play without fans and things of that sort. Talk about the importance of athletes utilizing their platforms to create social change. Well, you know, up until uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a platform to speak from. Now we have to do it uh, in social media, in, in spacing or whatever. But, you know, when you stop and you really take a look at it, man, is that now – more than at any other point in time, I think all the talking is over. And now it's action, you know, and actions of not only what we do, but what these governments do, and that it's bigger than us who are athletes and entertainers now. And that we have all, we have made our beds, so now we have to lay them. We've made our allies. Now, some of us who have taken a position that we love our people unconditionally, we take that position and we continue to take that position and, and ours is coming because now we know that 
400 years of slavery, man. That that period was up in August. So August 2019, we free people now. So the legacy of our ancestors, the legacy of the John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Muhammad Ali, Kurt Flood, all of those Jack Johnson's, those Paul Robeson's who gave us that base and foundation of critical thinking. We have to continue that vein of critical thinking, especially now. While we're on this lockdown, we should come out even sharper from a mental standpoint with solution-based programs, partnerships, economic relations that are much bolder and more comprehensive than before we went into this lockdown. So the paradigm shift that's happening right now is giving athletes and entertainers who have wealth and resources to come out of this thing in more of a leadership, leadership mindset, not from the standpoint that you're a leader because you got, but no, from a leadership from the standpoint that you have a plan and program that's going to change the condition of our poor people worldwide, not just for you and your family. And that's been the model that has been set in the past is that I'm a star, you're not a star, I'm a superstar, you're not a superstar. No, no, it's a whole new thing that this thing is hitting everybody on the planet, and it's hitting everybody on the planet for a given reason at this given time, and that we have to really look at this thing and know that it's a 25,000-year cycle, and we are, in, we are entering in the age of Aquarius. We're in it now. So the female energy is running this thing. So these white cats that's running all this stuff, they better wake up and, and hand that power over to the sisters and, and let them do their thing because uh, we didn't wreck shop for the last 25,000 years, or should I say they have. <laughs> okay. So talk, in your opinion, who are your top three or five humanitarian athletes currently in the world? You know, outside of outside of America, I haven't really, I haven't really, uh, I've seen some of the stuff that some of the young brothers that are in the league that are doing in Africa. I applaud them on that. Um, not really sure of specific ones, but I know that I've seen some, some and I can't recall the names. Um, definitely LeBron is at the top. What Colin Kaepernick did on, on taking his stance. Um, um, you know, it's, it's, and, they're, and they're out there, brother. And I'm, you know, it's um, I can't remember. I can't call the brother that played with the Seahawks, Michael. Um, his name escapes me, but brother, you know, and I think it's like this: everybody's doing something. Man. Whether you're doing your non-for-profit, you're doing something, and it's based on, to me, it's based on what you study and what's been mentored on you, and what you have a passion about. So I think. In this time that's happening, I think this is a spiritual time for black people especially, that this is a time never has happened in the history of this country where you told black people to stay at home and we're going to send you some bread to stay at the crib. So I say let's stay at the crib and let's, you know, hone our talents while we're sitting at the house, man, and stay in shape. Do push-ups, crunchy, get some stuff done while you're there, and don't eat yourself until business. Everybody tuning in right now, you are listening to Craig Hodges 
former three-point shootout champion. Um, Craig, transitioning to your time in the in the NBA, uh, you're Chicago. You're you're mainly an Illinois uh, kid. You came from Park Forest, went to Ridgeview High mm-hmm. School, and ultimately in the NBA, you did end up playing for the Bulls. Talk about what it was like for you to play for your hometown team. What did it mean to you? Well, for, well, for me, it was always it was a dream come true. And you know, I'd always I grew up watching the Bulls. Um, had a chance to go away to go to college in, in California. Had a chance to get drafted by a team in California, the Clippers at that time, and you know played for eight seasons before. Actually, they played for six seasons before I had a chance to move around and then get a chance to come here and play. It was um, it was a dream come true, but also it was always um, it was always that stress of knowing that. In this game, or in any game, there's always a chance of failing. And my thing was, I never wanted to be a failure in the game or in representing going away to school. You had so many brothers come home from school knowing they had flunked out and saying that the coach didn't like them and that kind of stuff. I didn't want to, I wanted to make sure that I was successful, and not only as a student athlete, but when I came here to Chicago to play, I wanted to make sure that. I was part of making us a successful team and, and winning. And we were able to do that and to be the only player on the team from Chicago when we won our first championship, that that means something. And not only to me, but it means something to, to me, to the city of Chicago, that, you know, they had someone on the team that was actually from here, born and raised, and been through the the depths of the Cubs losing, the White Sox losing, the Bears losing. Finally, in 85, the Bears win, and then we're still waiting for the Cubs and the White Sox to do their thing. So, hey, man, it was, um, it was a blessing. And also to be able to play with perhaps the greatest player to ever play the game and definitely the greatest player to play the game in the city of Chicago, MJ. It was it was cool, man. And not just MJ, and I'm, I'm not uh, negating any of the other guys because we won. It wasn't any anything of... Uh, us being separated, that it was truly a team, 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 and we were able to go out and, and represent it like that, and we knew the hierarchy of what the public was, but we knew in the private of our, our locker room it was about team. It wasn't just about MJ, and MJ understood that. We're going out into the public. The public going to see what they're going to see. They're going to highlight the way they highlight it, but within this context of when you go in this locker room, brother, it ain't like that. Greg, you said that obviously you played with MJ and you was part of the first three, first Bulls three-peat. So you got to see MJ fully emerge into being a top-tier player in the NBA. Talk about what it was like being around that conversation and playing against guys like Matt, Matt Johnson and Larry Bird, who for the longest held that torch and watched MJ basically take the torch from them and be the top guy in the league for and be, also become the MJ that he became. Right. You know, it's one of those things where you see the growth and you see the growth in maturity and, and as far as knowing that you can't do it by yourself. You can't go out and get 35 a night, but are you going to win? And are you going to understand the impact of being a well-rounded teammate, not just a ball player, that those are possessions that Magic and Bird and Isaiah had that Magic, that Michael didn't have until he submitted to the understanding that I can't do it by myself, that I'm going to have to allow coaching to 
allow my teammates to be effective when we go out here to compete. And him being big enough to accept that challenge of knowing that he's capable of going and get 40 every night, but do I need to go out and get 40 every night? Or can I use the same amount of energy and get more wins as opposed to using that same amount of energy to go get get my 40? And, you know, the realization of him being able to see that we got to go get these battles with Detroit, which was, you know, our main nemesis. It wasn't really Boston. It was Detroit that we had to go through Detroit and going through Detroit, we, and I'm sure he saw the difference in him going by himself and him going with the pack. And the pack is always able to, you know, maintain anything that any one of us goes down. We, the pack mentality is going to be able to carry us. So when he, you know, involved himself with the pack, he understood that at this point he was prepared to win and, and win for as long as he wanted to. What was your favorite MJ moment? Uh, practicing against him every day, man. <laughs> I practiced against him every day. And to me, those were, you know, those moments. But, you know, to see him and his father, man, after our first championship and to see his father put his arm around him while he's in tears, and to know how cool Papa Jay was and to see the impact that he had in the sounds like to keep him grounded and all that to get the same, man, that, that's, that was just a beautiful moment in as far as you see, seeing how far MJ came as a player and maintained that, that father and son relationship, man. That, that was cool for me to watch as a father. Okay. Yeah, that's that, that's a really special moment, man. Um, and, and I know it. Me being a young guy, for you to see that really probably, I know it really meant a lot to you. Um, but within that championship run that you, that first three P championship run, which championship to you was the most uh, was the most um, memorable? What was the one that when the most? What was the? What I'm trying to ask really is, what is the best out of those championship runs? Which Number one, was one the most special to you, the first one. Number one, you can't get six without one. <laughs> I tell people, yeah, you can go through. Uh, what about number three? Hey, you can't get three without one, bro. And you wouldn't know what you wouldn't know how to get to two without getting one. You wouldn't know how to get six without one. So one is not only critical in the whole of it, but it was that moment of knowing that you did it that first time. Hey, brother. <laughs> Can't nobody do that up. They can say, oh, you know, oh, man, I got sick. Oh, this sick on the air. Okay. <laughs> Go back. You didn't even think you was going to get to six. You feel me? Nobody don't think they're going to. Everybody want to win one. And now when you win one, now you can start to think, ah, oh, two may be possible if we got the crew and all of that. But, it's all about getting that one. That's Charles Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I hear you on that. Now, That's true. <laughs> so you have the last – I know you heard about the last dance documentary that's coming out uh, this weekend on Sunday, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it's highlighting the 1998 Bulls team. Um, from your perspective, since you were around in the league at the time, what was the difference, in your opinion, from your championship team 
to that 98 uh, team or to that second three team of the Bulls? Okay, the, the first championship, like I said, I was part of the first two, okay? The first two, 91-92, then was my, my ring year. Then first ones, teams weren't scared to play against us, okay? When I sat back and I watched, when they did that 72 or whatever they did, I mean, man, everybody, they came out, you came out and gave away games. You came out afraid. You wouldn't change your tactics. Teams would come in and know they're getting ready to get the bus with. So why play? Huh? And that's the part that, you know, as they went on during that mystique, people coming in, they coming in, they just shit. You just went and bought you a pair of Air Jordans. <laughs> and now you, you got to go play against the man. You know what I mean? So the mystique overtook so many teams. People like us, we after after we won the first one, we knew you had to be up at least 12 points with two minutes left in the game to beat us because we could give MJ the ball and say, go back into your 19, when your first when you first came in the league mode. Play for triangle. Here, go and get us 12 buckets. And he's going to go get them. You know, so it's a certain thing that, that confidence, you can call it confidence, you can call it cockiness, you can call it arrogance. But it's something when, it's like it's similar to this. When Tiger Woods is in his game, he walk onto a course and he got a four-shot advantage before the tournament even started. Because God's going, oh, man, Tiger here. While you thinking about him, he's worried about getting his ball in the fairway. <laughs> okay. Okay, I feel that. Now, obviously, we, we talked a little bit about LeBron James and your experience with Kobe Bryant and with MJ. Now, Stephon Marbury did tell um, Heavy.com writer and host of Scoopy Radio, Brandon Scoopy Robinson is a good friend of mine, he told him that MJ isn't from Earth and he is to go over everyone else, including LeBron. Now, do you agree with that? And if you do, who do you rank as your top five greatest players of all time? Hold on, he, how did he turn it? I'm sorry, can you say it again? What was the, what was the term that he used? Uh, he is he is not from Earth. Okay. That's another element. That's another element. I can get to that to a certain degree. Okay. I love that interview. That's another conversation. Okay. Now, MJ, he, he, I'm going to say this. He took the game to a different level, but it's all about winning. So the greatest of all time is Bill Russell, man. Okay. We don't get Bill. We don't get Bill as do. Why do you think that? And then because it's about winning, man. I say it's about winning. And see, people want to talk about the competition. I won the competition back then, but look who Bill Russell played against. He played against Will Chamberlain. He played against some caliber centers. But play center. They weren't playing no stretch forwards and not, nah. Okay? So now we got Bill Russell. You know, we can go along, you know, we look at winning shoot. You can take all of them Celtic teams and you got some W's over there. But when we talk about, we're talking about athleticism and blackness now because that's what these mean. Who, who's the most athletic and all of that? Okay? We can go MJ, Kobe, Will. LeBron, imagine. Then we talking about just like, you know, hooping. But then we look at 
both Shaq and this one here. And we're talking about just power running job over, you know? So it's, it's yeah, and then not, it's like, with me, I don't even like, we can do it, but I don't like doing it because I feel like, for one, basketball is a team sport. So it's a collective thing. Certain things, certain things players are able to do within the context of their realm that they were doing it in. So you have to take a lot of things in consideration. It's great to have a conversation about the GOAT, but when we talk about the GOAT, it's only one GOAT. And then I gotta, I gotta get off the phone after this one, brother. It's only one GOAT. And you know who that is, Muhammad Ali. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So just he came real- up. Okay. So he, real- came with, he came up with the. He came up with the labeling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, real brief. Right before you get. Right before we get on out of here. Real brief. So yes, are sir. you saying? Yes, sir. So are you saying that, just for clarification purposes, if you had to choose as the go to basketball. You are choosing Bill Russell because of his accomplishments. Absolutely. Period. 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 And I don't care who I don't care. If they come at me, come on. Come on. What did you do? See, and this is this part. What did you do for the game? Look what that man did for the game. You feel me? Yeah. What he did for what he did and see, he allowed us to be in the game. (laughs) <laughs> That's true. Yeah, true. Hey, I tell people all the time, when that thing come up, hey, we talking about the greatest athlete all the time, or we talking about the greatest player. If you're playing the game, you play to win. I hear you. And one more brief transition question, one more brief, but I got to mm-hmm. ask you this. Mm-hmm. You played with MJ, and you briefly coached Kobe. What are the yep. differences or sim- and similarities between those two players? MJ's right hand. <laughs> All right. That is, that's it. I'm not sure. MJ able to pick that ball up with one hand and do the things that he can do. That when Kobe was walking to the line shooting two free throws, that was damn one for MJ. Okay. Obviously, the last dance has played. I want to say six episodes at this at this moment. Um, have you watched the documentary? Yeah, I've been watching. It's been uh, it's been cool, man. You know, it's been it's been a good, I think, a good entertainment piece for probably everybody on the planet for right now. Um, at the same time, it's been some mild uh, things in as far as you know the way MJ has handled you know this documentary, but it's his playing the it the way he has. It's just an eye-opening, and I think uh, in a lot of ways, it's been good because it's going to open, it's going to stimulate conversation, man. And hopefully we can grow the people from it. You recently, um, in an article that recently came out, you recently mentioned about how you had some criticisms behind Jordan's comments when it comes to the, the cocaine circus and um, calling out teammates like Horace Grant and things of that sort, go, go for our audience, go more in-depth on those critiques that you have with MJ and the way he's handled um, just um, talking, to the, talking about these stories of, 
of what you and you being a part of those stories. Um, just go more in depth right. and talk about the, crit, the criticisms that you had regarding one, uh, one the situation. Thing, one of the things, one of the things that you know, I'm, from, you know, going forward since this has unrolled the way it has, it, it, it's coming across as though I got some type of beef from my brother. The first thing I want to say is that my brother, he's my brother, first of all. However, some things have have, have unfolded within life that we have to speak upon, especially if you take the position that I've taken and as far as my whole life is concerned, you know, one of human rights. And standing on that, that, you know, within the construct of our team, there are certain things that, and within the construct of any team, and and him coming to the Bulls, when he came to the Bulls, there was a certain, you know, culture on the team and the culture within in in society itself. And he lends himself to people that was out there partying or doing whatever they were doing. I just felt like he could have handled it in, in a more diplomatic fashion, like he handles other things that he don't really want to touch or he wants to skirt, where he could have said instead of him talking about him walking into the room with lines, weed, and women, he could have put that in a, in a term of, you know, he, you know, we had guys on the team who enjoyed life, and they they went out and we competed and we did the best that we could. He didn't, he didn't have to throw people under the bus because there's some people and some families that were sitting around waiting for this documentary to come on who were on that squad who have to make explanations to family members Maybe, you know, all type of stuff. So from that standpoint, I felt, you know, he could have been more uh, compassionate about the way you can bring your story and how you're going to handle people. So for me as a teammate, as a teammate of Horace and Scotty and anybody else that he brings out, if I was on the squad and I find it, 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 and I find it indifferent than what I experienced with my teammates, I'm going to speak on it. And that's what it stands to. But let it be not, let it not ever be, or let it, not be thought that I'm dissing my brother in a manner in which I'm trying to hurt him or his family or his, or his bread. Ain't no way I could affect his money on the level. But what I'm saying is don't think that I'm trying to diss my brother on the level of his garbage. I'm just going after what I see and in, in what I know to be facts in as far as our teammates and our camaraderie to win a championship. That's what I'm speaking about. Craig, obviously, they, they, this documentary sheds a lot of light on MJ, his career, his teammates, and you see how within the documentary, this specific teammates that have individual profiles or certain episodes that are dedicated just to them, like Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, even the head coach Phil Jackson. But me personally, this documentary is not the same without you in it. Because you were a, a true component of the first the first two championships you were a part of, and on top of that, you did more than just you know be a teammate on the team. You was a three, you was a three times three point shootout champion. You contributed in various ways, especially offensively with a three point jump shot, to help the Bulls team win. And not to mention, moving on in the documentary, they talk about Kobe Bryant. You were a, mm-hmm. you were one of the only two people that I could think of at this moment that had personal relationships with not just MJ but Kobe, and yet yeah. you're not in this documentary. So how can you, you know one, one one of the things that I want people to realize, man, is that when you're looking at it, like once again, it's from Michael's point of view. He has the right to have in it who he wants to have in it. One thing that I understand and I and I've realized over you know last twenty years or so in watching historical things unfold in as far as precedents, whether it be three-point contests or whether it be what we did as championship teams and how oftentimes I'm not part of it. That's not an issue from a personal level. I understand the 
the biggest part for me within the context of the competition was practicing on my craft. So the games and the competition, three-point competitions and the championships, yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the cherry on top of work. You know what I'm saying? But the work that I put into the game that is trying to be wiped from the record historically, it's funny to me. It's funny to me how, you know, I know the impact I had on him making the shot against Cleveland. I know the impact that I had on the team in game six with Detroit beat us, and he had 18 points and I had 19 points. So I understand the impact of it from a static, uh, statistical end and from a historical end. And I understand it more importantly from a spiritual end. So from that standpoint, I don't hold no malice against my brother. I have no power over him. He has, he has power that many of us don't will. And what we say in Scripture and in, in, in spirit is that to whom as much is given, much is required. That's all I'm saying. And they don't mean to say when anybody who has wealth, resources, celebrityhood, or whatever you want to call it, it ain't on me to tell you what to do. And I think it's wild how I'm hearing Stephen A. this morning, like Craig Hodges wore his blackness on his sleeve. No, brother. I wear my culture the same way anybody else wears their culture, and that's part of my sleeve. You know, don't make it as though the sleeve is only, no, nah, brother, you got to get it, get it right and understand it for what it is and the time in which this is. It's a, it's a new day. That's why we all have a, and see, my position on this whole thing is that the timing of the release of the documentary, some say it was supposed to be in the summer. All I'm saying is, along with the documentary, put out a piece to keep people healthy, to mitigate the circumstances that we face. That's all I'm saying. And, and, and within the context of the documentary, I'm going to have my brothers back on all fronts, just like I had his when I played with him. Everybody tuning in, you are now listening to former Bulls guard Craig Hodges. Craig, like I mentioned before in episode five, they talk about the, a, a little bit about the relationship between Kobe and MJ. And you have been, you have had the opportunity to not just play and build that personal relationship with MJ, but also right. build that relationship with Kobe. For the audience out there, did just go in depth on that relationship. Did Kobe ever ask you about what it was like? to have that relationship with M- with MJ and how to go about it. Like, did, talk about the little, uh, the per- the real in-depth analysis of both your relationships with Kobe and MJ and how they really played a role in both careers since you actually lived um, in both no careers. No doubt about it. You know, one thing, that, one thing that, has, that happens in basketball and really in all sports is that every generation ties to the next generation. So when you look at, when you look at Kobe Bryant and you look at, when you're looking at Kobe Bryant, you're actually looking at Dr. J. And when you look at Dr. J, you're looking at Connie Hawkins. So Connie Hawkins was to Dr. J what Dr. J was to Michael Jordan, what Michael was to Kobe. So for me, understanding the historical connection between all of it and to, and to know that you have to have those models in front of you in order for you to get better. And Kobe, Kobe took, um, he took a, a passionate, you know, link to MJ and the way MJ did things. He watched tape. You know, from the time he was a young boy until literally until he retired, about the way Michael did certain things on the court. He had a personal relationship, and for me, having played against Michael, trained with him, and then to have had and been blessed to be around Kobe, God rest his soul, that he had that that tenacity and a grit that if you weren't prepared as a teammate to handle, it could rub you the wrong way and even eliminate you from the group. 
on your own marriage just because you didn't want to either compete or you didn't feel like you didn't feel justified in the way that him being the alpha dog that he is, the way he came at you. So it was one of those things for me. I was blessed to, to have been around both of them, man. And, and like I said, once again, this whole thing is, is a blessing in a lot of ways. But the timing is is uh, somewhat questionable to me. But for me, I understand it for what it is. It's about economics, man. But as far as Kobe and MJ are concerned, it's almost uh, one of those things where Kobe MJ seemed to almost hand the baton to Kobe personally on a spiritual level from the standpoint of Kobe being able to watch him play the game in a certain way and being able to emulate that from a distance and, and take it to a high level, man. There's a lot of controversy behind MJ, the athlete, and how he how he was as a person as an athlete versus MJ, the activist, or the lack of activism that, took, that he unwittingly took. Now, with you, you're known as a player activist. You know what it's like to speak out on social justice issues and even play a role in social justice issues to the point where it literally costs you your, uh, a good portion of your career. Um, if you were MJ, put yourself in MJ's shoes. Do you believe he was right for handling those social justice opportunities? And if you and if not, do you believe what would you have done differently? Well, first of all, we we realize this. We realize that the Creator blesses you with talents, all right, and he he blesses you with talent. He blesses talents, passions, all of that. And for me, I was blessed to have a support base from the educational end before sports even began in my life. So reading, writing, I'm more passionate about that than I am about my sport. Likewise, what I studied in school from the time I was 18 until today is history and how it impacts people of African descent all over the globe, as well as poor people and the human rights struggle with people of all colors. So that's been the basis of, and the foundation of who I am you know, years. So when I look at what MJ studied, MJ studied ge- geography at uh, North Carolina. And that wasn't, you know, his passion was to become the greatest basketball player ever he has. And within the context of what he, in, in the context of the show, he lets you know that it wasn't about social activism to him. It was about being a, uh, the best basketball player and discipline that he could be. And that's what we're seeing. So to me, for me to put myself in his position, I wouldn't want to be. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be Michael Jordan for anything in the world. So for me, it would be it would be um, unrealistic for me to even make that comparison. But what I can say, like I said before, to whom much is given, much is required. I we see the impact. We see the impact of what he can do and what he has done within the con and within the confines of the business world. Those endorsement products that that you know multi 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 billions of dollars, and then it becomes a thing of how can those companies, how can those companies in, enhance life all over the globe? So, to me, it's not about a bottom line on my balance sheet. It's about a balance and compassion with those who have wealth and those who don't. Do we see it, and do we want to see it? So for me, one of my biggest things is, you know, the places that help you get your stardom, the people who help you get your stardom, you don't do it in a vacuum. 
Michael Jordan did not score those points without having somebody rebound on the defensive end, get him to rock, or he didn't get a rebound every single time he scored a bucket. So there had to be someone sacrificing something to get him that pill every trip, whether it be Scotty rubbing a pick on him, whether it be Scotty or whether it be Horace keeping Charles Oakley off of putting a, of some weight on him. So there's certain things that go into this game, man, that are bigger than any one person. So, you know, this whole thing to me is 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 one that is, is crystallized a lot for me, man, over this last 10 days, just seeing this whole thing and, and seeing how it's rolled out and seeing the people that is hurt. That's the part of me is saying that at this point in your life, brother, brother MJ, how much pain do you have to cause people in order to create capital for whoever, whether it be yourself or, or those that, that put it together or the endorsers of it? So just be compassionate, my brother. Have you talked to MJ since the documentary release? No, man, I haven't talked to MJ in years. In years, I've called, and in fact, I've called the Charlotte Hornets on a number of occasions. You know, so it ain't, I ain't talked to him in years, man. But it ain't, it, believe this, believe this. If I see that brother an hour from now, that's my brother. He's going to greet me as my brother because, first of all, he's my baby brother. I'm the elder, and I've never, I've never came at my brother in no cross-sided, side, winding way, and he know that. And I ain't doing it right now, and he know that. So it's not a, it's not any issue of us having no type of beef. And anybody want to make it like that, sit down and holler at Hodge. Everybody tuning in right now, you're listening to Craig Hodges, former three point champion. Um, real quickly before we head on out of here, um, obviously, MJ, back to the MJ and Kobe uh, discussion. Go in depth as far as the similar, like, I know you already touched on some of the similarities, but go and, but talk a little bit more about that as well as the differences over time between Kobe and MJ. And I'm not just talking about in basketball. I'm talking about life in general. Um, well, one thing, one thing, one, all that. one of the things that I can say is from, from just being around Kobe is that Kobe was a genuine reader. Uh, a brainiac. He um, he studied things in detail, you know. And and when I look at that, seemed to be one of the biggest differences that I could see. And I don't I didn't know how much reading was, but Michael did or writing or any any of that. But the thought, to, the critical thinking to me that I saw in Kobe Bryant and the discussions that we had that me and MJ never had. So it was a difference in it was a difference in, in generations, man. Kobe in this in this. Um, social media generation so a lot of information that you think about is instantaneous for you to find out the the answers to the questions that you may have about a given topic where in in the times that we grew up there's more research, more time involved. So I tell people a lot of times, you know, Craig Hodges probably and me stepping outside of my body looking at that brother that played the game and then I and I'm knowing him, I say that if Craig Hodges spent the amount of time that he spent on thinking about black people and our struggles and how to get solutions to that as opposed to and put that time into my craft and not worry about how I'm going to feed black people the world over, I think I could have a 30-40 game. So basketball was easy. It's, it's the solutions to 
the condition of poor people and, and homeless people and people of color all over the planet that has been my concern and, and in some ways a drawback from your ability to just go out and play the game the way you want to play the game, freedom, and not think about the condition of, you know, oppression. Frank Hodges, man, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. We wish you and your family nothing but the best. Um, hope you continue to enjoy the last dance as we're all trying to enjoy the last dance and and look forward to talking to you soon. Hey, brother, make sure that you and your listeners are, are safe, be well, and make sure you're studying and drinking plenty of water, man. Definitely, man. Appreciate you. Talk to you later. Peace, peace. Staying sane? Yep. Yep. I'm sorry, can you say that again? Are you staying sane? Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes, I'm definitely staying sane. Um, I'm working from home for the most part, so because I'm working from home and then, you know, doing all this other, all the other writing stuff on the side, it's it's keeping me busy. Good. That way. Good. How about you? Are you staying? Uh, I'll I'll ask, actually let me uh, ask you that uh, in a second because I'm going to start this off as like a podcast type of setting. Sure, sure, um, sure. So uh, we'll get started with that. Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hicks, Joshua M. Hicks of We Are Regal Radio slash War Media, host and columnist of In the, of In the Scope. And I am here with the astounding professional journalist, WBEZ uh, journalist, Cheryl Breaks Out. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining this, the podcast. Thank you for joining the interview. Um, and I can't wait to get more in depth with, these, uh, with this discussion about the last dance documentary coming up and your experience covering the Bulls. But before we tap into that, so how are you doing? How are your family doing? And how are you guys handling this pandemic? We're doing pretty well. I've got a college-age senior who is uh, finishing his college in the dining room, which is now a dorm. If you, it's I, I, as long as there's no laundry on the floor, I'm fine. And my <laughs> husband's working downstairs, and I've had enough to keep me, you know, keep me busy. But thanks okay. for asking. Hope you're good too. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing quite well. Thank you for asking. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, first, Cheryl, just talk about how you became a journalist reporter and what made you want to choose that career. Well, I, I was a, a kid that played a lot of sports, and it was before Title IX. I wasn't allowed to play sports in college, and I did theater too. And with the love of that, I, I went to college to get a degree in radio and television and journalism. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to try my hand, try to get into sports. I had no mentors. I had no role models. But um, I I was able to pace myself, being able to get into, uh, after Columbia, I went to WMAQ Radio, and I got my feet wet there. And I was fortunate that I had a news director that helped me get my aftercard so I could go on the air. And uh, we worked with Chet Kopic, who, uh, you know, I de- helped develop his show, produced that, was on that as a reporter, was able to uh, be part of the Bulls broadcast and the White Sox, and end up covering the White Sox, the Bulls, the Blackhawks, the Cubs, and the Bears. So um, I was able to, I was very fortunate that I had uh, some upper management that helped me go where I went, wanted to go. 
Definitely, that's an amazing story, uh, an amazing journey there, Cheryl, uh, for you to get to where you are now at WBEZ. Now, when we jump into this Bulls discussion, did you did you actually start covering the Bulls um, with WBEZ? What publication did you? Start no, I was no, I was with w, I was with WMAQ Radio. Okay. WMAQ Radio, and uh, fortunately, in 1985, we got the Bulls broadcast on our air. So that was the 85-86 season, and it was it was great to have you know it was like we had already had the White Sox, and we got the Bulls, and we were doing Chet Show. We had started the, a couple years before that, and what was great about this is that you know we were able to take Chet Show and do it at the stadium, and do the show from there, and so that's how we were able to, and then we were able to cover practices, and you know we were involved with the pregame, the postgame show. Unfortunately, Michael broke his foot <laughs> early in that season. So it was kind of a tough go not having Michael, but um, it was, I was fortunate because I got to know Michael that, you know, by covering them that way and being involved with the station. And so um, I was there from the get-go with him. So it's, it was a, a, a great opportunity for me as a young reporter producer and writer being able to be on the coattails of Michael's beginning of his career. Yeah, you talk and can you elaborate more on that on the idea of covering Michael Jordan? Like what was it like really being around in, uh, Michael Jordan and enjoying him watching his day-to-day schedule and what made MJ so special? Well, at the beginning you know, Michael, we knew who was it was a, was a great, it was a good player. We didn't know how great he was going to be, but going back to that 1985 season, when he breaks his foot, he's you know on the shelf for the majority of the season. Uh, funny story is that he, we share the same birthday, and he was going home from Chicago to North Carolina during the auto show at down at McCorn Place. And our station was, was set up with Chevrolet, which is one of his sponsors, to uh, – we had a display. We were with the, the, that display, and they asked, Mike, hey, be, before you go down to North Carolina, why don't you stop by uh, the display of Chevrolet, which is one of your sponsors, and, you know, with the radio crew and, and go on the air and, you know, sign some autographs. And he did that. And I told our, our PR person, I said, look, it's his birthday, too, which was my birthday also. And they had a big cake made for him. And, and so he came and we had, they had the cake. And they announced on the intercom that Michael Jordan was there. Now, this is, remember, this is 1985, well, actually, it was, uh, February of 86, that season. And so we didn't know the impact Michael had yet. It wasn't really established right away. We found out that day. <laughs> Because when they made that announcement, just about every person that was at the auto show came to the booth, and we had no security. And I looked at Michael. Michael looked at me. I'm going, man, this is insane. You know, there's just tons and tons of people, but he handled it well. But you know, it, it was we saw. I saw the maturation of his stardom, and I saw the way he dealt with people. And what was great about Michael is we were able to do. When you went to a game or you went to a practice, he would talk to you after practices. He would talk to you before games. He would talk to you after games. This was during the first uh, go-around, early in his career. And Michael always talked in the locker room. And the great thing about that, he would take every question. There was no cutoff time. There was no, you know, you never shoot everyone. 
he answered every, and there was a lot of dumb questions, but he never, you never saw that with him. He was very respectful of it. And what I enjoyed is I would go to the uh, preseason night practices. They used to do two a days back then in the eighties. And so I would go to night practices and sometimes I'd be the only person there and I would have long conversations with Michael, you know, on and off the record. So, you know, I was able to establish a rapport early with him and he was very respectful of me and he, you know, it was, it was so different than the way it is now. Now it did change when he came back when I, I, you know, that's because of those conversations, why I was able to mine him. We talked about baseball and he told me he was going to, you know, play baseball and I, and that was a year over a year before he actually retired to play baseball. That's why I was able to break that story. And then I broke the story when he came back again because I knew the sound, I knew the way those practices were because of him. But we did come back. We sat down and I did an interview just before the season, and we, it was a 37-minute interview. And he said to me when we finished, he says, "You know, I'm not going to be doing this with many people. You are one of the only ones I will do this." And I was like, oh, my gosh. I didn't realize that he respected me the way he did until he said that. Wow, that's an amazing story. Oh, that's, that's really amazing. But in your coverage with MJ, in a way, did it transform the way how you interview top-tier professional athletes in today's era? It, You know what, the, to deal with Michael the way I did, because – Michael and I, because it, it wasn't, he, I, I was there at the, the ground level before he became big. And it got really crazy once you got into the finals. And it, it, the second, the th- second three people, once it was, you know, when Jordan came back, all of a sudden you had a massive, massive amount of people covering. I mean, people think that uh, LeBron James has covered, not, not as Michael and that, that Bulls team had much more than that. You had so many people from Europe, and you had so many people. And, you know, there was, like, constant crews. We had people that, that lived here from Germany and, and France that was covering them. But Michael was not – he did not like dealing with the media as much because the way they treated him about playing baseball. So he was reticent about that. But he, but he still would talk to you um, if he knew you. He also was always available post-game. Um, even good and bad times, he, he was still available. And it was, it was when I had to travel that first season, the station sent me down to uh, Miami. I had gone to the you know, other playoff runs, but they had me stay in the hotel where the Bulls were staying. And I usually never did that, but they, they put me in that hotel. Oh, my gosh. I thought I would. Now I know what it was probably like with the Beatles. It was that insane where the lobby was filled with all these people wanting to see Michael. And, you know, it was, it was just an incredible existence. And then, and when I thought about when I, when I think about them going, he didn't have a normal life. He couldn't do things normally like other people. He had all the money, he you know, had all the fame, but he couldn't walk down the street anymore. He couldn't go to a store if he wanted to. I mean, everything. And I know, like, restaurants would actually, you know, like, they'd be closed and they would open up for, just for him and, and you know, his, his his group of people that he was with. So, so he had such a different life that anybody could believe. And then you fast forward, fast forward now when the way things are with, with, with players. Players are not as congenial as, they, as Michael was and, and all the players of that NBA era were, were – they, you know, they now tell you, well, what we, like when LeBron comes to Chicago, 
he only talks this time. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's very, very, very regulated. So you don't have that, you can't make that connection as easily as you could a few years ago or several years ago at this point. Um, teams now control everything because they want to get the message out their way. Players want to control the message because they want it to come out their way. So there's kind of a chasm that's been built between the media and the players that wasn't there during the Michael Jordan era. Okay. Um, what's your favorite MJ moment? Oh, I have a lot of them. I mean, I, I just, you know, there's an article that uh, was just written that, that I talked about this. It was those moments we would have before the games. It was the moments we would have with Michael, just, just having conversations. And one time there there was this little girl from Make-A-Wish Foundation, and he said he had these kids came often. And uh, he, this little girl, was she was about four years old, wore a pretty little dress, and she was sitting on his lap. And this is before the game, and he's talking with her. And, being, you know, we, we, just, we kept our distance. We weren't real close because it was a – a kind of a private moment, but not really because it was in the locker room. And he finished with her, and and and, and she left, and you get the tears in his eyes. He was just really moved by that. And that's something people didn't see. You know, they didn't see how kind he was to a lot of people. Daryl Stingley, who was um, permanently injured playing football when he was with the Patriots by uh, when he was he was quadriplegic. Um, was there every game in his wheelchair, and Michael would always stop to talk to him. You know, Michael did that. He he was very kind to people around him. He noticed everything about what was going on with other people. He didn't just you didn't just walk by. He observed a lot of things, and and that was kind of neat. And there was this, and I will tell you this one story about several years ago there was an incident with a an east coast uh, female reporter that was really t- she was really uh it was a strange situation with some football players and it, it brought the whole thing to light about women being in the locker room and i was in the bears locker room and michael was sitting off to the side and and I had to like, because I would kind of like crawl underneath and out and everything to get out of a, a you know a group of people around the player. So we were talking to the Bears quarterback, and I kind of like got was on my hands and knees to get out. And Mike was sitting there, and, and he goes to me, he goes, I can't believe I never I never realized what you had to go through in order to do the interviews after games. I'm going, hey, you got to do what you got to do. But he he noticed that, and he commented, and he goes. Man, he says you got a tough job. I mean, again, he was he he was very cognizant of what other people did. That's awesome. That 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 really is awesome. Especially since uh, Michael Jordan, he actually made a statement saying that if you watch this documentary that's coming out this weekend, you're gonna be you're gonna think that he's a bad guy. You know that it's gonna come out as a bad guy, but you but you highlighted moments where there's a sensitive side to him that not many people got to relate with. And that's really and that's really important. You know, the thing is, he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I never had a, I never had a bad issue with him ever. So I can't, you know, I can't expound on it. I, I know that there's some, you know, people that, you know, some things he did or some things he said, but he never did anything 
that I saw that I could, you know, say, you know, he did this or did that. All I saw was a player that was beyond anything that we could ever comprehend, the most competitive. And I saw him. I did see him do some stuff with players, too. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it was his competitive spirit. There's nobody. There's only two players I saw like that to that nth degree, and it was Michael and Walter Payton, the two most competitive players that you'll ever see, but they are also the two greatest players I've ever covered. So I think that goes hand in hand. And sometimes you, the thing about Michael, and I know this for a fact, is that Michael knew that when he played against somebody that he could get in their head. And some people may think that that's kind of a mean thing, but he, but that was his competitive edge. He knew that if he could get in somebody's head, uh, you know, that he can, he can intimidate them. And that's, again, that's part, it may not look nice, it may not sound nice, but that's why he was a winner. Okay, that, that, that's really interesting. As far as the, ninth, the 1998 championship team, you know, the Last Dance documentary is covering not just MJ, but that, that last run that, that ultimately put the icing on the cake for the Bulls dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, describe your experiences in covering that team, but not just what's going on behind the scenes with MJ um, and Phil Jackson and all that, but also the players, other uh, players as well during that, during that time era. Like talk about your experiences in covering that team and what that was like and what they had to endure. It was a tough season um, because everyone knew at the beginning what was going to happen at the end, that this team was not going to be the same team. And it was, it was a, it was a real slug fest as far. I mean, this team was just, they were physically tired. They were mentally tired. They were, you know, they had to challenge themselves to get going. Don't forget that Scottie Pippen had a back injury. He was gone most of that season. I mean, his injury was really difficult. And they, they somehow were able to overcome when he came back. I mean, they were, they were just, you know, they were treading water, a little bit over treading water. But when he came back, they finally, you know, really started to get together. They had 13-game win streak. Um, and but But there was a – there was stuff that was going on. There was people that were, you know, there was little bitter battles going on, verbal battles that you would walk into, and it was it was uncomfortable. You, you could tell that they were just done, but they were going to, you know, they wanted to win this thing no matter what. And, you know, Dennis was being Dennis. and But I, the person, one of the people that I really got to, you know, during that, you know, second time going around was Steve Kerr. And... Steve Kerr was, and, and his wife, Margot, I got to know her real. She was sitting next to me, you know, at the, at the media table and stuff. And, and, you, and, and, the, and you really realized, you know, when you look at what his life was like and what he had dealt with with his father's murder and stuff like that. And, and you know, you, you, and, and Bill Wennington, you know, getting to know him and Luke Longley. And they were just fun. They were just fun guys. You know, they were, they were, they were great to be around. And, um, and But they knew that it was going to take every breath in their body in order to win that year. And there was no way Michael was going to allow them to lose that series in Utah. And that was that last shot that Michael took um, over uh, Byron Russell. Yeah. um, That last shot was almost reminded me of how everything started with Michael Jordan's shot over Craig Eagle. 
it was like he ended his Bulls career similar to the way the Bulls hit pay dirt on the rise of their team. And that was the best way you could end that. It was, it was terrific. And, and the, the post celebration was really, I mean, like really excessive. I mean, it, just, it kept going on and on and on and on and on, but it was, it was a season that was not easy. And, you know, Jerry Krause and, and Phil Jackson, you know, they, they never really got along well. Um, that was really tense. There was a lot of things that were going on that was uncomfortable. And I think everybody, I'm talking about everybody from media to the, you know, the players, to the staff, to the usher. I mean, everybody was kind of glad it was over with. And fortunately, glad it was over with, with a championship. Wow. Okay. Talk about, um, Really, just go in depth as far as what's a there's a I mean I mean within a documentary, it has been reported that there's going to be a lot of unseen footages in the public mm-hmm. that they're showing. Can you tell if if you don't mind, can you please tell us any stories or anything you've witnessed or seen that you may not have told anyone, but it's something that you remember and made an impact on your coverage during that 1998 season. You know, um, there was nothing that was, you know, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm not going to know about either until, until I see it. You know, there was, you know, they had stuff on the plane, stuff like that. Um, it, it was, you know, it was just a, not an easy season. I, I, the funniest thing for me personally was when I was covering uh, the preseason and I had just had my son in June, uh, early because I got rattled around in the Bulls locker room winning that championship. And Michael asked me to bring my son to a game. So I'm bringing this, this uh, three and a half month old baby to a game because Michael wanted to meet him. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, for me, that's a personal story. There's nothing, you know, behind the scenes, but that's the way he was. And the thing is, Michael went through so much with what happened with his dad and coming back and, and doing this. And I think for him, even though he didn't want Phil to leave, I think you just felt that he wanted it to be finished too. You just, there was just a feeling of finality that you felt with this team. And, you know, you, you go to practices, you go to games and you just, you know, you just, it was just like going to a memorial you know, like it was just just something that was ending. Hmm. Okay. Now, outside of MJ, who was one or two people on that team that you really enjoyed covering during that '98 season? As I mentioned, I think uh, Steve Kerr. I, I just I really really enjoyed a lot. I just I just found him to be affable, available, honest. Um, and you know the another person that doesn't get the credit for how great he was with the media is Ron Harper, and Ron Harper had a very difficult dealing with a stutter, and he still made himself available to us whenever we wanted and that's that says a lot about him. I mean he really was terrific to talk to 
was very good about and very honest. I mean, there was a, there's an honesty about this team that you know you may not get with other players, but these were these were you know these were all really interesting people. Dennis Rodman, I was very fortunate. I had a good rapport with him. Dennis only liked to talk when he was on the road, and you know I was fortunate that I was one of those people he would talk to on the road, and it was some bizarre things. But uh, the, a funny thing that happened was when I was in Miami at their hotel, and I had worked till like one o'clock in the morning. I was really tired, and and I hadn't eaten, so I go. I knew that Johnny Rockets was open, so I'm walking. I walk to Johnny Rockets a couple blocks away, get some food, and I'm coming back. And there's a limousine. Now this is at this point it's like one thirty ish in the morning, and there's a limousine in front with some of the Bulls players. And Dennis Rodman. And Dennis goes to me, he goes, sure, come with us. And he's talking about him and go, I said, you crazy? It's almost 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going out with you guys. <laughs> but, you know, that that's, that was kind of fun and, and it was kind of interesting. And, I, and then I said to my boss the next day, he says, don't ever put me in a hotel with the Bulls again, ever, please. <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny and, and interesting. But it's amazing that you got that experience. It really is. And to, to cap off the conversation, you, you covered uh, all the three piece, all the three piece, both the 91 through the 93, yep. and you have the 96 to 98. Mm-hmm. You, you also mentioned previously uh, in the, in this conversation that you covered the Blackhawks mm-hmm. and all these different teams that won that you know at one at some point in time won championships with the Blackhawks. Winning their three to six championships, three to, uh, their three peats, and the and the six championships within the, their eight years, as well as the Bulls, who you consider to be the best Chicago or city dynasty? Oh, and I covered the Bears too. That with their one Super Bowl win, which was the most incredible win. Um, I I think. You know, a lot of people. I I I enjoyed the first three peat. I I think the I think the Bulls dynasty during that area. It, it was bigger, and it captivated the city, and it lasted a long time, and it it expanded the NBA. Michael Jordan expanded the NBA globally. So I think when I look at that dynasty, Michael Jordan and that team went beyond the Blackhawks is a it's a great story because they, the difficulties of covering of, of being an NHL champion is because they have a hard salary cap so you have to get rid of players at times so they had to keep you know adjusting their team but when you look at the what the Bulls did and captured everything and it, it's amazing I knew somebody that was uh, doing um, work in Czechoslovakia that's before they to change the name and he was he kept telling me that people there want to know about Michael Jordan. This is this is actually, you know, before just around the time of the championships. So I mean, you knew that they were bigger and 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 just entrenched in Chicago, and you saw more kids wanting to play basketball. More camps were you know came into being. More jerseys. You see more Bulls jerseys than almost anything. Everywhere, so I always look at that dynasty as probably being one of the most important ones. 
in Chicago in national history when it comes to sports teams. Okay. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for the interview and, and for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, look forward to keeping in touch with you and stay safe. Continue to stay safe. You, you're welcome. Take care, Josh. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Eric, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. All right. Um, let's get started then. Okay. What's up, everybody? This is uh, Joshua M. Hicks, senior writer of We Are Regal Radio, a.k.a. Warm Media, and this is the In The Scope podcast. I have a very special guest on the podcast with us this, uh, today, ESPN NBA reporter Eric Woodyard. Eric Woodyard, how you doing, man? And how I'm you good, man. This pandemic? Man, I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, um, you know, just spending time with family, man, and just uh, you know, able to collect my thoughts, man. It's, it's been uh, it's been a blessing in disguise in some ways, man. It's been great. Now, I feel you, man. Really appreciate you, appreciate you coming on to the Endoscope podcast. Um, gonna, we got a lot of different topics topics to dive in, but let's start off with the last dance. Mm-hmm. We finally done with the ten episodes, five weeks worth of Jordan content that. Blew everybody's minds. I know I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I learned different things from it. But and I know you watched it. Give us your takeaways from the actual documentary, and what could you possibly, and what did you learn from that documentary that you can actually apply to yourself? Man, it was life? so it, it was so much, man. I mean, even just you know how it came together, how they've been sitting on that footage since '98, over 20 years, you know, for you know amazing content to be held like that, and for it to be presented the way it was. I think that was amazing within itself because that's true storytelling. You know, I think that's what, that's what ESPN is all about, you know, telling real stories and not just, you know, slapping things together. So from that sense, I was amazed by, you know, the storytelling in it. Um, but also, I just loved how open MJ was. You know, we never heard him talk about his dad's situation. We never heard about, um, you know, him going depth about the gambling and, you know, him being a bad teammate as perceived by everyone. Um, him going in depth on those topics, I think, uh, you really got a sense of Jordan as a human being. I think, you know, he's been almost so mythical to us our whole life that, you know, we finally got to see, like, the human side of MJ, and I think that was really inspiring to see, like, you know, he's a human being just like everybody else. And, you know, even from a media perspective, you see in some ways, like, you know, the the grind of that, you know, ran him away from the game the first time. So um, it, it was so much, man. I mean, those are some of the things that come to mind, you know, right away, though. Now, me personally, I loved it, but I did think you could, let's put it way, you could tell MJ really had his hand on the documentary because there's some things that are very that MJ was very open about, like you mentioned. But at the same time, I think ESPN in this specific case, and and more towards MJ's concern, there are some people that should have been. I think at least one person for sure that should have been in a documentary, and that's Craig Hodges. I mean, mm-hmm. Craig Hodges played with MJ. He helped them win the first two out of the three out of the first three teeth, and, uh, from a championship perspective. But he also was like a big brother. To, uh, he was like a big brother to MJ, mm-hmm. and he had the best of both worlds. But not only playing with MJ and watching him grow into the star he became, especially within those per, that first three teeth, but also had the chance to coach Kobe Bryant, and he had the the he had the perspective from both Kobe regarding the Kobe uh, MJ relationship that was briefly highlighted in this in this docuseries, as well as 
him playing in the earlier days with MJ. I, I think that was a mishap that Jordan just didn't allow uh, to happen. And he was, and Craig was one of those people that actually was very outspoken about that. Just like Horace Grant recently uh, was outspoken about his outrage of his uh, portrayal within the documentary. And then you hear the rumors about Scottie Pippen being upset. So talk about uh, from a reporter's perspective, and if you were in the shoes of the directors of ESPN and working with MJ on this, would you consider bringing multiple demographics from those other players' side on top uh, and comparing it to what Jordan had to speak out of, uh, about regarding those instances? How would I mean, you handle yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a catch-22. You're never going to make everybody happy. You know, at the end of the day, though, it's Michael's run. People want to hear what Mike got to say. So, I mean, that's just being honest, man. There's no, no disrespect to Craig Hodges, no disrespect to Horace Grant, no disrespect to Scotty Pippen. They were great people. But that star power in MJ, would you sacrifice, you know, uh, not put a documentary out that he has some type of hand in to, you know, get their perspective in? Don't have it out, or do you want to see it? And there's going to be holes in it. I mean, you know, people complain about why they not being in it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of different – you know, with anything, it's going to be criticism. But overall, I still think it was amazing how it turned out. And, I mean, yeah, he could have made an appearance, but I don't think it was detrimental to the whole documentary that they weren't in it. And it's like, oh, it's terrible now because Chris Hodges went in there. Or, you know, Horace Grant don't like how he was portrayed. It's like, it's coming from MJ's perspective. So, I mean, you know, it's going to be a catch-22 with every documentary if a player is involved with it. You know, uh, you know, the alternative could have been him not doing it as a whole. So, um, I, I like how it, how it turned out. Man, I thought it was it was great from being in the director shows. I never talked to him, you know, nothing like that. But I understand, you know, sometimes if you work on a player, I mean, that's kind of going to be the catch twenty two at times. You know, it's, it's going to be something that you've got to give up to get, you know, the ultimate goal, which was to get it out. And I think it was great. Everybody tuning in, we have ESPN NBA reporter Eric Woodrow on the on, on the on the line. So, Eric, um, before we talk about the current NBA season, um, the NBA has they've been taking a bunch of hits ever since 2020 really started. You've had the loss of David Stern, former commissioner of the league, the unfortunate death of Kobe Bryant, and now you got the pandemic. And just recently, uh, Hall of Fame head coach and, and player, former player of the Bulls and Hall of Fame coach of the Utah Jazz, Jerry Sloan, passes away. Um, you, had a, you covered the Jazz with the Desert News um, before you actually came to ESPN. Did you yeah. actually have a chance to talk to Jerry Sloan during your tenure covering the Jazz? Yeah, I met him and you know spoke to him. He was, you know, he was in pretty bad shape. You know, by the time I got there, um, I, I was out there for two years, but uh, I did get a chance to talk to his wife Tammy, so I knew that he was he was getting pretty serious right before he passed away. You know, she had told me uh, via text that it was getting serious, but um, yeah, he would always be around. Every time Greg Popovich would come as well for the Spurs, he always would try to seek out Jerry Sloan, and they were. He was still listed as, like, uh, I think a mentor and advisor or something like that. So he would make appearances all the time. So I saw him around a lot of different times, even though it wasn't always reported that he was there. He would always be around at the games and until, it, you know, his health was getting worse and worse. So, um, yeah, great person. I had so much respect around the league. Um, and yeah, it, was, it was a great experience being out there in Utah and getting a chance to be around a legendary guy like that. What did you learn from your conversation? From your conversation with Jerry Sloan, what has he actually taught you, and what did you learn more from learning about him? Um, obviously, we weren't fully around when he was in his prime coaching days with the Utah Jazz, when he took the Utah Jazz to the finals and things of that sort, but um, he coached D. Williams, Darren Williams, 
Coach Carlos Boozer, coached those teams to the finals, and he kept the and he really brought the Utah Jazz a consistency from all from not just from coaches but players on the court as well. And he brought a disciplinary fact, uh, factor to that. What did you learn from your interviews or your conversation with Jerry Sloan that you can really uh, take away when, with the conversation that you had with him? Uh, we didn't like I said it wasn't nothing really that deep between me and him personally, but I did a big story on him. It was right ahead of his seventy seventh birthday, like. The Jazz were coming to play the Bulls, ironically, and, uh, you know, his jersey was retired in uh, in Chicago. So I did a story about kind of his legacy. So I talked to, like, uh, Jabari Parker, who's from Chicago. We talked to, uh, um, we talked to Pat Beverly. We talked to Kyle Malone. Uh, talked to uh, um, a lot of legendary, from Greg Popovich, a lot of different figures around the league. And I actually posted it on my Twitter, reposted the story that I did. And it was great. Like I said, uh, just learning about his legacy, I, I think, you know, just like you said, the consistency, um, you see all the the DNA of Jay Swan is basically you know, Jazz program to this day. Um, outside of this season, they 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 pretty much been very tight lipped. You know, not going to leak a lot of information. I was even shocked. You know, when the information came out about Donovan and Rudy because that's like so far away from Jazz DNA. But yeah, I think you know, not necessarily talking to him, but just learning and you know talking to other people about him. You know, his legacy is still so huge in uh, Salt Lake City and Utah, and uh, even you know some way. With Chicago, he's the original Mr. Bull. So, I mean, that tells you, tells you the type of person that he was. But I think his health was so bad by the time I got out there that it wasn't like, you know, I got a direct, you know, Paul, uh, he told me anything directly like that. I learned more so from being around Quinn Snyder, who's kind of in that, you know, same DNA. And Quinn is a, was an amazing coach to cover. Uh, he made me a better reporter because I would have to follow my questions in different ways, you know, because he was so smart, man. So, I think, you know, just trying to put that DNA in the draft to hire a guy like Quinn Snyder. So, I think I learned a lot you know, from covering Coach Quinn Yeah, man, we want to send our condolences out to the Sloan, to not just the NBA fan, but also to the Sloan family in general. Uh, prayers and condolences to them. And you briefly mentioned Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. As we transition to the COVID-19 situation within the NBA, we, we all know that the Jazz versus Thunder game was really the first game, was really the game that set off the rest of pause for the rest of the season with Rudy Gobert being the first NBA player actually diagnosed with the COVID-19 uh, disease. And we also know that Donovan Mitchell got it, and there was reported a beef between the two over it. Um, you know them personally from your coverage and your time in Utah. Talk about their talk about their uh, relationship that you had, not just with them individually, but the relationships that Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell have. Yeah, when I was out there, man, it was totally different. Uh, they were extremely close. Uh, the model of the team was team is everything. So they were extremely close. I never saw, you know, any type of rift between those two guys when I was out there. Um, both both guys, you know, gave a lot back. You know, Donovan, every game, every time before a game, he would get his shoes out to a pair, you know, a pair of shoes out to a kid in the audience. Rudy Gobert also would, uh, you know, had his own foundation where every block shot, he would donate $1,000, even on the road, you know, to a charity of, you know, whatever he, he would choose. So they were, they were great human beings. I mean, but, you know, when you're dealing with something like a pandemic, and, you know, at that point when the coronavirus came out, it was deadly. So, you know, for anybody, you know, and I, like I said, I haven't spoke to them, you know, personally about it, but that's for anybody, you know, if they feel like someone has been taking it that serious, you know, uh, you know, it could have been a rift there with that. So um, that's kind of just human nature. But when I was there, they had a really good relationship. But I understand with something so serious like that where it could potentially be deadly, you know, that's how, you know, the, the feelings can get, you know, get intense at that point. Due to your understanding of the strong culture that has been established within the Utah Jazz, 
obviously with this rift taking place, do you really believe that, of course, there's rumors circling that, like like any other situation would, where something goes wrong, oh, they got to get rid of this duo, or one of them is going to eventually go. Do you actually believe that with the strong culture that the Jazz have, that they can make this long, this relationship work out long term? They can fix whatever needs to be fixed, if there even is anything to be fixed, and they can make this thing work to have both of them as their, as their foundational pieces for the long term. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do, and I think they're better as Utah Jazz players than anywhere else. Just the way that their game is is uh, is structured. I think that system fits Rudy Gobert perfect, and it fits Donovan Mitchell perfect. So yeah, I think you know they, they're strong enough. The front office already came out. Dennis Lindsay from the front office has said that you know that's behind them. They're moving past it. So I think they definitely can have a professional relationship moving forward. And I think the Jazz are the right organization to do it just because, like you said, that strong culture. Uh, Quinn Snyder being the type of leader he is as a coach. Uh, certain teammates on there, you know, I think, you know, they have a really solid, uh, solid group of guys around, you know, that, that, that can get through it. And I think they, they're better as jazz players uh, than anywhere else. Everybody tuning in, we are, you are listening to former Utah jazz reporter and current Midwest NBA reporter, Eric Woodyard. Um, Eric, we are now in a situation with the NBA where it's been reportedly the league is potentially coming back in late July. Um, Orlando and Vegas have been potential places that's been mentioned that the league is, is looking into to, you know, potentially finish out the seasons in. Is that some of the same stuff that you're hearing? And what is the most up-to-date reporting behind that type of situation that you are aware of? Yeah, that's 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 basically what I'm hearing, too. I, I saw the league just uh, put out a statement saying that they're uh, basically in talks to try to, you know, make that happen. Hopefully if everything go, goes as planned. But, yeah, I'm, I've pretty much been hearing everything, the same thing everybody else been hearing. Uh, it makes sense that, you know, they were playing Orlando, uh, you know, at the Disney complex where everything is right there so guys can train and be under one, you know, setting. But I, I'm just worried about, you know, some of the players that don't want to play, you know, because all we're hearing about is guys that do want to play, uh, guys that, uh, you know, you know do want to go out there and try to compete for a championship. But there are NBA players who don't want to play. You know, I won't name none of them or anything like that, but I know for, for certain there are players that don't want to play. So I think, you know, getting back in basketball mode, you know, within a week or two, it's, it's, it's going to be tough for some of the guys mentally because they've just been sitting around. Some of them without even hoops. So that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I, and I like how you brought up the fact that players uh, potentially not just – you know, like you said, there's some players that want to play, but there's also some players that don't want to play. You cover the Bucks and the Bulls. I know you say you're not going to name names, but can you give us an idea uh, from people from that from any of those – either of those teams um, the vibe that you got from them uh, as far as players that want to play and players that don't. Is there any way you can relate some of that information for us? I think the vibe from the Bucks is that everybody wants to play. They're, they're sniffing the championship. I'm not sure about the Bulls, but, you know, I know the Bucks for sure they want to play. You know, um, they, they're, they're, they're sniffing the championship. They feel like the time is now for them, and they really want to win the ring. You know, starting with Giannis Antetokounmpo, he's in his, you know, entering his prime. If, he, if he's not in his prime, and uh, he, he can smell the championship just like LeBron James. So I think yeah, those guys, you know, they want to play, but you know, I'm not sure about the Bulls. From what I understand, they do though. They they got a new front office, uh, you know, figuring out the coaching situation there. Uh, but I think more so the Bucks. I mean, they're they're in a position to win a championship, so obviously they want to play. Chris Hodges recently told me that uh, Giannis is the best player in the league, and there's no one that is on Giannis's level. From you seeing him personally, you covering him on a consistent basis, do you agree? Yeah, I think he's the best player in the league. I think uh, his determination, you know, that drive to be the best, you know, it's that MJ, it's that Kobe, 
you know, he had that fire in him to be the best. You know, he's lifting weights, you know, every single day, man. He has a very um, distinct work, like, routine that he goes through, man. Like, he's very, very meticulous about getting his work in. And he has that fire to be the best. I think, you know, uh, between him, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, you know, to KD get back, you know, they, they are on another level right now. You know, and um, it's fun to watch, man. This, this league, was, this season was shaping out to be one of the best that I've seen in a long time. And, uh, uh, we'll see what happens, man. But I think, you know, he's definitely in that category as being one of the best players in the league. Jack recently came out and said that if the league, even though he is against um, finishing the season, if, he, if, they, if the NBA really wanted to pursue that, there would be an aspect towards the championship because of the delay in the season with this pandemic. Now, the Bucks going into this, going into the pandemic, before the pandemic, the, obviously the Bucks is the best team in the league. They have the number one seed, and they really, like you said, they were really striving to look and striving for that championship. Do you believe that if the Bucks were to win the championship, do you believe there will be an asterisk towards that championship season? Uh, I, I want to say it, it depends on the situation. If the Bucks get to the finals and LeBron James gets hurt, because you know, knock on wood, I don't want nobody to get hurt, or Anthony Davis or a superstar player gets hurt because they, you know, they, they're not in shape or something like that, then yeah. But if everybody's healthy and they all returning and playing the way they're supposed to be, no, I won't. But, you know, if a guy has an unforeseen accident or gets hurt or something, then, yeah, for sure. But, you know, right now, um, it just really depends on how the season plays out. You know, uh, if, if it plays out where guys are healthy and, you know, can really return and play the way that they're supposed to play, then, you know, I don't see an issue with it. But, you know, if it goes the other way, then, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I, I understand that. But, if there's potentially saying that the championship in general could could potentially have an asterisk depending on what goes on. Do you yeah, think the same? Potentially, it could. Yeah, it, it could potentially for sure. Yeah. Do you believe that it also applies to, uh, you know, the regular season awards that they put out with the MVP, the player of the year, rookie of the year? Do any no. of those awards have asterisks as well? No, I don't think so. I think I think we were so far in the season that you saw who was doing what. You know, if it was maybe 20, 30 games to the season, but we were, you know. 50-some games, 50, almost 60 games through the season. So, no, I don't I don't think that at all. I mean, the guys who put in the work, they, they deserve to be honored this year. And, no, I don't see an asterisk at all. Because this was an amazing season from even the All-Star game. was, you know, all-time classic, one of the best I've seen. You know, so it was, it was shaping into a great season. So, I, I don't see an asterisk by the regular season awards. Does Giannis win MVP? Is he your vote for MVP this year? Because me, personally, I do think it's LeBron. Yeah. At least it was really, and LeBron was really putting the pedal to the middle yeah. prior yeah. to this pandemic, uh, you know, hitting the came into coming the way that it did. And but I talked to uh, Craig Hodges about this topic. He said that he, because of the fact that he's putting up such astronomical numbers from the jump, um, mm-hmm. on top of the fact that he was of, of the way Giannis controls the game and how he's really elevated that Bucks team and even even performed at a higher level than he did last year. He's automatically should be deserving of that MVP. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought LeBron was making a push, though, man. It was getting interesting. I thought Giannis running away with it early in the year, but LeBron was really making the push. But I think, you know, if if, if the season awards were given on right now, he would be my vote for MVP because, you know, the Bucks were so dominant. And then a lot of games, he set out the fourth quarter. So he's putting up crazy numbers without even, you know, playing a lot of minutes, really. So, yeah, I definitely think he's the vote for the MVP. But LeBron was having a spectacular season. You know, one of the best that he's had in years, man, and uh, he was definitely making a push for it. It was still a you know, discussion, and the, the Lakers were starting to really quick. They had beat the Bucks and beat the 
Clippers and really, really starting to gel together as a team. So, uh, yeah, man, it was fun. But I, I would, I would, if I could vote, I would, I would vote for Giannis today if I could. ESPN NBA reporter Eric Woodard on the line. Eric, there has been discussions being reported, and, and this was my surprise recently finding find, finding this out from ESPN First Take. Uh, Jay Williams was on First Take talking about how there's a discussion inside the league about the idea of having a play-in tournament for the playoffs, and mainly really supporting the idea of the eight the eight seeds, and I think eighth or ninth seeds of each conference through this. 16th or 17th, I forgot how many actual teams are in each conference, but to the bottom of the league for the most part, doing a play-in playoff tournament, so that way you entertain them by giving them a chance to play out the regular season, finish up the season, and still give them a chance to make the playoffs, and then when they make the playoffs, they go from there and play against the best of the best. What is your what is your thoughts on that, and if, have, you actually, have you actually heard that from your reporting, and if so, what are your thoughts on that idea? Because I, I get it, but I don't know. I'm kind of in between on her as of right now. What are your thoughts nah, about that? I just like I like the way that the, the league is set up now. That's, that's just a little too trendy for me, man. I like the format that it is now. Um, I don't think that should change it personally, man. It, it just feels like it's very trendy in this this professional basketball. I think the way it is, if it's not broke, don't fix it, man. So that's that's my thoughts on it. Okay, I, I feel that because <laughs> at the same time too, you know, because. At one point in time, there was many discussions about the fact that the West was so dominant and the East was so weak that from a competitive perspective, you wondered if you should just change the playoff format in general and instead of doing one through eight seeds in each conference, you should do the overall best one through 16 teams from uh, from best 16 teams in the league, and they just have at it. Yeah. And, and maybe yeah. do like an NCAA tournament type of format with that, like March Madness. Do you think this could be a, a good opportunity for the NBA to potentially explore that with the pandemic basically shaking up everything in the league anyway? It, it could be. It just, like I said, as I said before, it just feels trendy for me, man. It's like, and then logistically when it's the playoffs, I mean, that's why you have an Eastern and Western Conference. Like, if you play, if you if the Miami Heat make the playoffs, you know, and play against the Lakers, like, you know, you, it just logistically don't make sense, you know, before the finals, you know, to do that. So, I I like the way it is now. I don't. I don't think they should change it up. But you know, just just keep it the way it is. Okay, I feel you on that. I feel you on that. Let's transition to the big three. Um, the season is postponed, um, but they recently put out a statement saying that um, uh, there's still plenty to do the reality uh, reality TV show that you know that they plan to do along with the season, and I believe it's being produced by Big Brother. I could be wrong on that. But um, they're still working with them to do this reality show. What is what was your intake on the idea of having a reality show? Like, what do you do? You think that could really benefit benefit the big three? And from your reporting, what was what details have you heard that's supposed to surround that idea of um, of the reality show? I think you know the biggest thing is is the the big three is growing right now, so any exposure. You know, any any opportunity where they have, I think it'd be great for the league as they continue to grow. Um, as far as kind uh, of work, as long as it's safe, you know, at this point, that's the biggest thing. I mean, all these players and everybody's trying to do this, but will it be safe? If a guy gets test positive for Corona, can they continue it? You know, it's it's like a lot of things are being planned right now, but I think we we need to you know really get to the can society we're trying to be safe first. You know, everybody want to rush sports back, but. Somebody test positive again, we're going to shut everything down. So I think 
as long as the big three has things in place, and from what I hear, they're trying to be quarantined while they do it and do everything safely. But as long as they can do that, and it works out, it's great exposure for the big three. They're still growing the ice cube, and you know everybody over there is doing an amazing job to try to really make this a legitimate league. So I think for them, any exposure is good at this point. I kind of like the idea, but I also recently wrote an article that will soon be out on War Media for our viewers, so check the website when it, uh, when it comes out. But I wrote about the idea of the NBA being, since the NBA being such a trending um, and open-minded uh, type of league, like All-Star Weekend, they, applied, they looked at it and applied the Elon method, you know, during the All-Star game, and it became a huge success, right? But Imagine if they utilize that same concept that Big Three is using with the reality show and implementing it with them finishing the season. Yeah. I actually think that would be kind of beneficial because the league is lose, it's already going to be losing millions and millions of dollars from this. And it's been reported that it could be billions depending on the TV contracts and things of that sort. So having a reality show could help offset some of, the, some of that money depending on who's in the league and they approve and get the approval and they consent and everything. But I think that could help with that. And it also gives us a more in-depth from a journalistic uh, entertainment perspective of what they're going through on a daily basis throughout the coronavirus. I mean, we have our own stories. We have our own lives that we deal with. And it's obviously different from a professional athlete's concern, but we don't get to see the in-depth reality of what that athlete is, could potentially be going through. So if they're open to it, it would be a great way to highlight what athletes are really going through to to still do their job by being entertainers for the most part within the league. Am I crazy to think about that idea? No, it's not, but I think, you know, they're still probably figuring out what media is on don't even be allowed. So when you're doing something like that, you got to understand, you know, safety is number one. So it's like, are you really going to feel comfortable having a photographer on you every day? Because you're going to be under quarantine, so... That's a whole other level of, you know, it would be great if they're open to it, but, I mean, in reality, you know, does a professional athlete feel comfortable having a photographer around when this coronavirus is still going on? So you got to think about all that, you know, at, at the end of the day, because it's, it's not like the player is going to carry a, a camera around on them to do it. But, yeah, I mean, it would be great, but it, that, that puts the production team to do that. So it really depends on how they're going to sort out media, you know, when they, if they do decide to, you know, playing Orlando, you know, will it be guys being able to be followed around all that stuff? So I think they got to get all that in, in, in place first. Well, I'm glad to know that I'm number one not crazy. And number no, two. you're not crazy. You know, it, it, it <laughs> wouldn't be bad, but it's just like, you know, you got to really think, man, like how much media is going to be allowed. And, you know, if guys don't be away from their families for months, you know, like they don't want their family around. Are their family going to feel comfortable with this photographer around them all the time and not knowing what he's doing with a photographer to be quarantined for this one minute? It's a lot to think about. It's a lot of things that really, you know, have to be sorted out, man. But I mean, that would be an amazing idea. Yeah, man, you, you you definitely bring up some good points. And all I know is that if they get this media thing sorted out, and for and they do end up flying you out to Orlando, so that way <laughs> you can cover the thing. You gotta just, yeah. just, just stop by stop by the Indescope podcast, stop by War Media, get us get us the updates, man, because we want to know. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, man, um, what do you have next coming up from a publication standpoint? Man, we just uh, we just working every day, man, trying to find stories, you know, uh, trying to be creative, think outside the box. Um, you know, we just just taking it easy day by day, man, and just, you know, keep make sure I'm keeping my phone line open. It's just at this point, man, it, you know, we're in a different kind of sport, so it's just like everybody's just trying to you know figure it out and be creative at the same time. Well, 
Yeah, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, um, E underscore Woodyard, W-O-O-D-Y-A-R-D. Uh, you can follow me on there, man, and uh, I try to be entertaining and have a little fun, so reach out, hit me up. <laughs> for sure, man. Thank you for tuning in to the, uh, to the podcast. Really appreciate it. And everybody, be fit, uh, be sure to follow me on social media, Twitter at jtix042 and Instagram at thatguyjoshtix. And also check out War Media's website, wearerigoradio.com, for the latest sports coverage. We got a lot coming your way. So definitely be on the lookout. I just try to be as happy and entertaining as Eric is on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> so if I'm only halfway there, I'm def- it's definitely worth following this, following this guy. My brother, yeah, I appreciate, appreciate you, man. you, man. And we'll talk soon. All right, man. Thank you, man. No problem. Yeah.